Hey, what's going on there, everybody? Welcome back to the Double Down WNBA podcast. My name is Eric Nemchak, alongside Stephen Trinkwald. Uh, the WNBA season is in the books. 2021 is all set and finished. Uh, we are going to kind of look back on things, Stephen, and do our uh, 2021 regular season award picks. Uh, maybe a little late, but uh, as far as, as far as content is concerned, I think this is always a fun exercise. Um, we probably won't agree on everything, but uh, you know, it's it's good for completionist purposes. You know, we always say that we probably won't agree on everything, and then it, it comes pretty close. But uh, Yeah, it, it does, yeah. Yeah, this is uh, a little later than I think most award-related uh, content, but we're a once-a-week show, so we, we do things, uh, you know, that are... We, we weren't going to talk about this while games are still going on or anything like that, especially when your beloved Chicago Sky were making a historic playoff run. Right. So, uh, But let's get into it. Uh, I guess we should start with the big one, huh? Big one, MVP going to a big player, John Quill Jones. Uh, I mean, my, my pick was John Quill Jones. I, I'm guessing yours was as well. I did have John Quill Jones, I think, pretty close to uh, unanimous among official voters and non-official voters alike. I know she didn't officially get the unanimous. I think was she won one vote short of unanimous. Something like that. But, I mean, it was a great season, right? It, not the ending of the season that I think uh, a lot of people imagined, but the improvement that I think she made all around and her flexibility to be an effective four as well as a five uh one of the best defensive players in the league this year and i think her season as a passer on top of being an all-world defender and and everything else that she does offensively in terms of the offensive rebounding and the floor spacing with her shooting you know maybe the most versatile shooter on this connecticut team amazingly enough uh i thought she made is that a compliment (laughs) Um, (laughs) um but i did think that she made great strides as a passer particularly in the face-up game, you know, whether it's kind of in transition or semi-transition or just sort of at the top of the key, um, that was a, a great area of improvement this year, I thought, for JJ. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It, you, you mentioned the specifics there, which which I think is important to uh, to say. You know, she's not she's not really Tina Charles in that you can, or, or Brittany Griner in that you can post her up and she'll just dissect a defense with her passing, but she did improve it noticeably, particularly when she's handling the ball from the perimeter. Um, she's a willing passer whenever somebody would come over to uh, try and cut her off. Uh, and she's in her vision, you know, in transition, I, I was very impressed with. It's, it's just another thing I think John Cole has added to her overall bag as, as far as a an MVP caliber player. Usually with like a, a high usage player like her, you'd expect, you know, a, a few easy assists here and there just because she's commanding so much attention. But she just looked very comfortable handling and passing the rock this season. For as many points as she scored, and and you said as many rebounds as she secured, she really took an extra stride in her passing as well. So that was that was very impressive, and like I said, a a, a key step in her development as a as a star player. And I I think the really the only case against her, you know, prior to this disappointing postseason run was the five game absence for Eurobasket. Um, yeah. where she, I think she ended up playing probably about 90% of the minutes that Brittany Griner played, who I had second on my list. I don't, I don't know about your down ballot here. So, you know, when you're at that kind of 90% threshold of the other leading candidate, that to me is enough to kind of wave off the concern there. Yeah, I agree. And, and this was something going back to uh, that time period. I think a lot of people had John Quell as like their early MVP favorite, and they were kind of concerned about, well, how is this absence going to affect her her candidacy? You know, the Sun ended up losing a couple games there uh, to the Sky uh, in particular without John Cole Jones. And then she came back and they went on, geez, how many games did they win to end the season? Like, was it 14? Well, they did not lose a regular season game after the Olympic break. Which, there you go. I mean, it, the, the case is there. It's It's not like, you know, Connecticut was a good team without her and a... Terrific team with her. So that's that's a good enough case for me. And you, you mentioned the postseason and the, and the disappointing end to her season. I just want to say before we go any further um, for the listeners, we had our picks for the most part. At least I know Steven did. We had our picks before, like like weeks before for this show. We're just getting around to recording it now. Postseason did not really influence our decisions because this is regular season awards. So just want to clarify that. And, um, and I'm not necessarily against kind of doing it that way if if you're acknowledging that it's a different thing right like if you sure. want to do kind of a, an all-encompassing type awards you know Brittany Griner's probably number one there due to the combination of regular season and postseason that she had but but that's a different thing right 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 right, right. and and for uh, for what it's worth I would also have Brittany Griner as second place on this vote Phoenix just got off to too slow of a start 
for in, in this particular case. Um, but yeah, John Cole Jones, I, I totally agree with what the voters went with uh, for MVP. And, you know, in some ways, I, I just have a couple more points just to make about most valuable player and, and awards in general. You know, one thing is that it, it's in some ways just kind of a bummer that JJ had this season this year because, I mean, this is probably the the peak we'll see from Brittany Griner in her WNBA career. You know, this is the season that we've been waiting for year over year, you know, uh, and obviously propelled in in hindsight in some regards by that playoff run. But, um, you know, and, and the other thing is that I, I just kind of wish that the WNBA as a whole, I think they would be more, they would be well served in kind of keeping more accessible um, information about, you know, who does finish as runner up in, in some of these uh, awards, you know, MVP. It, it's not the easiest thing to find in terms of kind of who got voting shares for some of these major awards. Uh, and this is at least the second time I can think of uh, in recent history where Brittany Griner came a, as a runner up, but it's not really something you're going to find. And I think in shaping how we perceive these players' careers down the line, it would be, you know, beneficial to kind of have that stuff a little bit more readily accessible. Do you believe in voter fatigue? I do. I think that's kind of evident just in terms of, you know, you, you go look at some of these awards. For MVP specifically, you know, there's not really kind of a run where a player is even winning back-to-back MVPs, never mind, you know, three in a row or something like that. Right, right. See, the reason I ask is, uh, like, John Cole Jones could very well repeat her statistical performance next season, but I think it's very unlikely uh, that Connecticut as a team, you know, wins the number one overall seed again. Of course, you know, health dependent and, and disrespect and all that stuff. You know, I've been proven wrong with the sun before. But, you know, I mean, I, I feel like if even right now, if we're to look at MVP for next season, like Brittany Griner has all the momentum heading into next season. So just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that, that's probably a good point. And she's obviously a popular year over year pick kind of going yeah. into each season. And obviously, you know, this season in particular has done nothing to to dissuade that as, you know, maybe some other seasons had prior to this but yeah that that's a great point i didn't really think of kind of the sun's sort of place uh in, in all that but yeah no you're right because you have to take i mean a, a huge part of jj's argument was best player on the best team right so are the sun gonna be the best team again i don't know it's it's too early to tell but uh that's something to keep an eye on uh okay do you have anything else or should we move on let's go to defensive player of the year who were you kind of seriously considering for this award I was considering Sylvia Fowles and Brianna Turner. Not a very large pool, not, not as large of a pool as I think other people would have considered. Uh, but what, for me, it came down to, you know, typically you think of front court players as being overall more impactful defensively than, than back court players. That's, that's just the way it is. Um, and two front court players who impact the game defensively in very different ways. How about you? My kind of final pool of players came down to my winner, who was Jonquil Jones, uh, Sylvia Fowles, who you mentioned, Brianna Stewart, and Brittany Sykes. Uh, those okay. those were the players that I thought really kind of got credence in here. Who did you end up going with? Did you go with Turner or Fowles? I went with Fowles, um, and here's why. So the Lynx maybe as a whole, as a unit, didn't perform as well defensively as you would have expected, but I really don't think that's any fault of Fowles. You know, I mean, she was... She had a combined, average a combined 3.6 stocks per game as the team's primary rim protector and pick and roll defender. That little nugget, inf- that little fact right there is re- really, you know, it, it boils down just how important defensively, how important defensively she is, and how much ground she covers as the team center. You don't usually expect um, a, a paint bound player who's, you know, defending the pick and roll like like Fowles does her, her elite level of that to also be such a defensive playmaker with, with the with the steals and the block shots combined. So, And she was also second in the WNBA in defensive rebounding percentage as well. So I, I think, you know, you, you, can, you can pluck out any individual defensive metric that you want and say, uh, well, Fowles doesn't deserve it because of this, or Fowles does deserve, does deserve it because of this. The fact of the matter for me is defense is just harder to quantify than offense. That's, that's the way it is right now. Um, and most of the metrics would say Sylvia Fowles is still a good pick for defensive player of the year. And they were, you know, they were top four defense. That's really all you can ask for. I mean, they, yes, they were better with Sylvia Fowles off the floor. Like, do you think, and this is a rhetorical question because I know how you feel about it, but for the folks that are like 
oh, but but they were better with fouls off the floor. Like, do you think that's because Natalie Achanwa was a superior defensive player this season, or could it possibly be that bench lineups are consistently worse than starting lineups, and and they're just going to be worse at scoring, yeah. right? There's a lot more context than just that slight, and, and it wasn't even like a large point differential. It, it was a, a very slim one at that. But, you know, Falls, uh, definitely a perfectly reasonable pick. I had her second. For me, John Quill Jones was the winner. And and one other thing about Falls is, you know, not the defensive talent around her necessarily of some of these other players that, that are in consideration. You know, perfectly good right. defenders at most positions, but you also... You know, in the case of like a Damaris Dantis, a player who I like a lot, but is, you know, playing heavy minutes for them and, and a bit of a defensive liability, someone that other teams are targeting a little bit. Crystal Collier Dangerfield. clearly wasn't herself for most of this season. Yeah, Collier had, I think, her worst season on both ends. Uh, so defensively, obviously, a, a part of that. Um, but to, to go on to my pick, John Quill Jones, this Connecticut Sun defense, at least in the regular season, like this was an all-time good defense. And yes, they are full of... You know, all defensive players, one through four. Some would say one through five. John Quill Jones is, is the straw that stirs that drink. She's She's been a dominant help defender. You know, they never allow any attempts at the rim. Their opponents finish extremely poorly when they do get there. She was number one in positive residuals defensive contribution metric. I think John Quell is, you know, maybe it's Parker, maybe it's John Quell in terms of the best player in the league right there at, like, being the most effective kind of uh, menace guarding the rim when when you don't have that strong offensive threat to worry about. Um, and obviously, you know, she's a great individual defender, right? We saw kind of star defensive performances one-on-one against Asia Wilson, defending her as, about as well as anybody else in the league. She played Nafisa Collier off the floor in some of those games against the Lynx. So Jones, you know, I... I've, it definitely was much more of a collective effort for the Sun, but but they don't get there. You know, they're not a special defense without John Quill Jones. That's very well said, and I you know I'm I'm a big fan of defensive rebounding. I, I think that also needs to factor into it. John Quill Jones, tremendous rebounding season. I mean, as usual. Uh, where do you want to go from here? Let's go with Rookie of the Year because I have some thoughts on this. Okay, let let's go with Rookie of the Year. What are your thoughts? Um, my thoughts are that this rookie class was absolutely terrible. And this wasn't an award where one player, okay, for, uh, I'll just say it right now, Michaela Onyenwede deserved to win rookie of the year. She was my pick for rookie of the year. Do I think she had a great season? No, but she won rookie of the year. When you look at this rookie class, it's, it's almost as if Onyenwede was the only rookie who had a consistent starting role on her respective team. Am I off base there? She was the one, the only one that really played consistent minutes from start to finish throughout the entire season. You know, listen, Dee Richards came, came along. Go ahead. Go ahead. Listen to this. Michaela Onyewede led uh, WNBA rookies in minutes played, 721 total. The next most was Ari McDonald at 493. That's a crazy difference in, that, in, that's in, a huge in, in total drop minutes. Off. That's a huge drop off. So if, if you're going by just amount of opportunity, it was clear cut. Like, like it was... Onyenwari basically had this award sewn up after one month, you know? Yeah, uh, and honestly, she probably had an opportunity to lose that award if, you know, Atlanta didn't value, even late in the season, you know, those last couple months of the season, right. as Onyenwari was struggling a little bit, if, you know, Atlanta wasn't playing Odyssey Sims and Blake Dietrich more minutes than, than uh, McDonald, you know? Very, very that, that award was definitely there for the taking, I think, at some points. Yeah. Um, so it, a little bit of a, a winner by default, but Hey, I, I think Michaela Onyewetti is going to be like a, a valuable player in the league. You know, it's, Absolutely. You, you're going to look back and say, well, yeah, this player that was rookie of the year, maybe not the type of player that some of the other rookie of the years of, uh, of years past turned out to be in terms of the second or, or third best player or, you know, MVP caliber player or, or anything like that. But you know, she, it's not like she's going to be out of the league or, or something like she's not a no, fringe no. rotation player. I don't think. No, and, and to be fair, like just to make it clear, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of Michaela Onyewere. I think she's an exciting, young, dynamic player, and her ceiling is is pretty high. You know, I, I wish she was a couple inches taller, man, so she would really make a, a good power forward. But um, she so she showed some good play finishing chops this season. Her her outside jumper was further along than I anticipated it to be, and I think there is a place for her on this New York Liberty team and in the WNBA. You know, she is a legit rotation player. Um, the, the one thing I wanted to say about this, this this whole thing, though, is that I, I have to wonder 
when when it comes down to this, how many of these rookies is this just an opportunistic award? Flip like like take Michaela Onyewede and put her on Atlanta, and take Ari McDonald and put her on New York, for instance. Granted, different positions and all that stuff, but New York just had the had the space to play play more rookies than most of these other teams, um, or to play two rookies and give them a significant load of of the usage. Whereas you know for a team like Dallas, for instance, had a bunch of rookies and you know didn't really have a a clear plan for any of them. So it, it just seems like to me, a lot of this award and a lot of the all rookie team came down to which players were in the situation that benefited them the most. Do you get where I'm going with this? Yeah. And in, in this season, I, I would say, but you, you think back at like the, the Jackie Young, Nafisa Kali or Arike Gumbawale class, like that was one where you actually, you know, that there were legitimate cases for multiple players, you sure. know, kind of vying for, and, and it, sort of came down to like, okay, what, what do you sort of value out of a player? You know, is it just kind of a volume score or a little bit more impact on winning or, you know, upside or whatever it may be. So I do think this was probably a bit of a, an anomaly in terms of kind of what this award looks like. Okay. Now, now you also picked Onion Wede, correct? I did have Onion Wede. Yep. Okay. Okay. Any, anything else you want to add on her? Uh, no, well, I guess we can just do our all rookie team while we're here. I didn't want to kind of get too much into rookie talk because we've got some other rookie content coming down the pike in a few weeks, but I went with, uh, Onion Wede, McDonald, uh, Dana Evans of your Chicago Sky, Dee Dee Richards, and then I had Charlie Collier as sort of a, uh, a default fifth player, (laughs) uh, someone who started some games, you know, scored the ball okay at times. You know, I, I was more impressed with Awak Kuir's flashes than Charlie Collier's, but you know statistically there just wasn't really any case to to put uh, Awak over Charlie on this team. The minutes weren't there. The minutes weren't there. And um, and first of all, and and before I go any further, that that was my, those were my, my picks as well. It, there were a few kind of default names in there, weren't there? I feel like maybe uh, Dana Evans was the last player in. Cause I mean, she wasn't even on the sky for a little while. Um, but if you look at her role, she actually had like a consistent contributing role on a decent team. She, she was kind of a no brainer to me, to yeah. be honest with you. Um, okay. Because okay. she, you know, even if she wasn't there from, from game one and she wasn't playing a consistent, you know, 12 to 15 minutes a night, like Chicago, they at least feel like they kind of filled that position. Dana Evans showed at least a, consistent solid WNBA skill you know she she's a, a player in this league I think um so so she was kind of a no-brainer I think <laughs> that's like the faintest listen that's like the faintest praise ever but I, I agree I mean she earned that award I think were there any other players you considered like Garantes played more in LA but she she shot the ball terribly uh I would guess like my, my sixth player would would be Dijanae Carrington she had I thought okay. a, a case to be on this but you know the sixth best case in a pretty tough class well tough class to, to evaluate um for rookie purposes but okay yeah that's that's the all rookie team um that that was actually the official all rookie team i believe so i don't really have any qualms with that um moving on where should we go from here let's go to sixth player of the year okay i considered quite a a, a large batch of players here uh came down to three players for me uh my third place player was dierica hamby uh, second, I had Allie Quigley, and then my winner, uh, who I think won the official award, was Kelsey Plum, who I think uh, you had as well for this one. Yes, I also had Kelsey Plum winning. Uh, it's interesting. All those players you named are starting caliber players, without a doubt. Um, yeah, let me let me to... just say, Natisha okay. Heideman would be my player if we're only judging team team's sixth player or worse, you know, uh, of players that are actually your team's sixth best player. I think Natisha Heideman would win this award, but that's yeah, not that's not the award. No, it is, it is, it is best player who came off the bench for that threshold of, of games. So let's talk about Kelsey Plum. Um, she had an incredible season. I think the best of her career, she really elevated her game to new heights and it benefited the Las Vegas aces in an all around way. You know, it wasn't just, she increased her points per game, right? She had, uh, her, her efficiency was amazing. Her, she, she took her playmaking to a new level. We saw a 100-point increase in her true shooting while her usage increased as well. She improved her finishing at the rim. She increased her ability to get to the line. Her turnovers decreased while her playmaking was consistent. So, um, I mean, she she was such a needed element of this team that, you know, much like Connecticut, 
things didn't end up as, as expected. Um, but Kelsey Plum was, was a great player. We saw like kind of the version of Kelsey Plum that sort of warranted, you know, a, a, a number one type pick you know, coming out of college. And obviously she has the story coming back from the injury. She plays on, on a great team. Um, you know, maybe Allie Quigley like matters a little bit more to her team's success. Uh, and it was a, a pretty close case for me between Quigley and, and Plum, but you know, Plum one came off the bench more consistently and two, you know, didn't miss the time that Quigley missed. So, so that was kind of the tiebreaker, but Kelsey Plum, definitely, you know, a very, very deserving, uh, award winner here. Yeah, it's almost as if if, if you score thirty five hundred points in college, you 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 know what you're doing with the basketball. Um, Kelsey Plum, yeah, she's she was really amazing. I, and you already mentioned like she took that next step as a playmaker. It, it wasn't just that she got she that she shot the ball more. She looked in control of of most of the games that she was in, and she had her her role on this team was much larger than it had been on any other team uh, previously speaking. That to me that that really sealed the deal for me on on the sixth woman of the year award because. The Aces were okay with her just like letting her run the show with the second unit. And that's kind of what made the Aces so deadly is that they had playmaking everywhere. And it was like when Kelsey Plum into the game, defenses didn't get to take a break. You know, she was cooking second units all season long. Um, and like you said, she, she looked like the Kelsey Plum that warranted the number one overall selection in, in 2017. I'm not really sure what else to say that you, you haven't already said. Uh, well, one, one thing I wanted to say is that she okay. also, you know, that that element that you were talking about of having Kelsey Plum run the show, like that's kind of what we sort of always expected from Kelsey Plum. One thing I would say is that she also looked more comfortable this season off the ball. You know, she didn't really, I mean, I think she was always a respected and capable three-point shooter, but uh, as a spot-up threat, I think she, um, there was a little bit more uh, additional kind of lever- level of comfort there. Um, you know, whether it's just as a catch and shoot player or attacking closeouts, uh, stuff like that. Okay. I, I don't think we have much more to add here, honestly. Uh, Kelsey Plum was the official winner of this award. Neither of us disagree. Let's go to, uh, let's go to most improved player. Okay. Most improved player. I also had Kelsey Plum for this award and here's why. Well, I mean, I kind of already said it. I haven't seen Kelsey Plum play professional basketball in the WNBA at this level before. Um, and this this isn't even counting the fact that she came back from an Achilles tear a year prior, which is amazing in itself. Um, she had the best she's had the best season of her WNBA career thus far. And if you look at most of the other candidates for this award, they were all pretty good previously. Not saying that Kelsey Plum wasn't, but if you compare her 2021 season to her 2019 season, there is absolutely no contest. Um, Brianna Jones is the one who won this award and. You know, I, I don't think that's a bad pick. Um, she she improved. She she continues to improve, and she had a good case. She was a great player this year. I agree, but she was pretty good the previous season too. You know, and whenever there, whenever there's that sort of question in there, I have it hard. I have a hard time giving it to a player just because of increased volume. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I uh, agree with that last part you said. Uh, long time double down listeners may remember that I had Brianna Jones second on my ballot last year, so it was. Uh, kind of a tough sell for me to uh, put her as most improved. You know, she she did improve, like you're saying, right? I thought defensively is where she kind of made she her did. her biggest strides. Um, her ability to kind of, you know, fit into their their sort of hard hedging system this year is maybe not something that you would have seen coming two or three years ago. Uh, she did not really make my top three. Uh, I had Kelsey Plum, your pick third. I had Mercedes Russell second, who I think, um, you know, her her finishing package like you know what she's able to kind of do around the rim has improved so much even just from last year uh and because of those increased finishing skills you know she was able to reduce her proportion of shots from floater range pretty drastically she was able to greatly improve her efficiency because of that increase or or that that improved finishing and it's not just you know finishing strong uh, but but just her touch around the rim and sort of the angles that she was able to finish from um, you know, and, and also defensively, already a good defensive player, but I think she continues to improve there. But my winner for this award was uh, Tiffany Mitchell, who um, went from, frankly, being a, a pretty bad player over the course of her career to being uh, an adequate to, to good player. She was 46% from two this season after never being able to break 40% for her career. Her three-point percentage this year was still bad, but she cut her volume way down, right? So that that's good. If you're not taking the shots that you can't make anymore, that's an the improvement. Okay. Right. She 
is getting to the line at an elite level, 94th percentile in free throw attempt rate, essentially a quarter of her shooting possessions are coming from the free throw line while cutting her personal foul rate way down uh, over last year. And, you know, Tiffany Mitchell, of all players, is in the 68th percentile league-wide in true shooting. So a player who is routinely one of the least efficient high-usage players year over year, you know, typically below the 40th percentile, was up to almost 70th. So, you know, th- this to me is kind of what the award should be about whenever possible. You know, it's not kind of that second-year player who gets, you know, four times as many minutes and, and is able to kind of really uh, <laughs> increase their points per game or the player finally able to crack the rotation in the case of like Bree Jones or something like that. Like those are great stories, but this is a player who has like been playing heavy minutes in the league for a long time without really being an effective player and, and finally was this past season. You know, that's... Honestly, I didn't even consider Tiffany Mitchell, but you laid out one heck of an argument for her. Um, and you're totally right. Th- this award, I, I don't really like this award. I, I think it-, it tends to just go to the player with the highest usage increase or the highest minutes increase. Or the player who just had a huge jump in, uh, in three-point percentage, you know, the Leilani Mitchell award. <laughs> the Leilani, just call it the, the, the Leilani Mitchell will, will, reta- will reclaim her throne as the rightful motion-proof player next season, I'm calling it. She's going to make it three. Um, but... Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. This is what the award should be about. You you actually saw a marked improvement from Tiffany Mitchell. And this goes back a few years, um, you know, as a Sky fan who saw Cheyenne Parker grow from a player who could not shoot a free throw to a player who was making counter moves with her left hand at the rim. Um, I was kind of upset that Cheyenne Parker never earned a, I mean, never was rewarded with a most improved player award because she was clearly improving as a player. Um, but it kept going to players who just, played more minutes or took a lot more shots, you know, or, or played in more games. And it's just like, well, just because a player scores more points per game doesn't mean they've improved. You know, like, like what, what what's your barometer for, for improving, you know? And in the case you laid out there for Tiffany Mitchell, like that's a legitimate case for an improved player. So I would have no problem with that if Tiffany Mitchell won this award. So we have the, uh, the, the teams to do still, but we also have one last, I guess, uh, uh, individual award coach of the year who did you have for coach of the year i had kurt miller i had kurt miller of your connecticut son i think it's a pretty straightforward award what about you i also had kurt miller you know i i didn't think anybody really like outside of you know the the top like i had kurt miller one and then i had bill lambert two and then i had cheryl reeve three and that was like the order of the standings it was a very kind right. of not but but kurt miller more so than just like have coaching the best regular season team like I thought this team was just going to be okay that their identity just wasn't going to work that their offense would be bad and instead they were like a perfectly effective offense and a generationally good defense at least in the regular season you know maybe we saw some limitations of of Kurt Miller as a coach in the playoffs but you know you can be really good in some elements of coaching and not excel in other areas of coaching and, and still be a really good coach and Kurt Miller is a really good coach I honestly think he's an elite coach and I don't, I don't see, I don't think we need any more time. I don't think we need any more evidence from it. Um, the thing about this award is to me, it, it usually goes either one of two ways. It either goes to the coach whose team vastly outplays the preseason expectations, or it goes to the coach whose team finishes in first place. <laughs> and Kurt Miller's team did both of those things. And I think for me, what really sealed the deal here, and, and I've mentioned this before, but I, I need to say it again, again, cause I think it's so awesome. The Sun went from a team that was, you know, that they wanted to push the ball. They wanted to play as fast as possible. They wanted to get up points. They wanted to control the tempo of the game to a team that played really slow, played heavily through their post players, the frontcourt players, and was like a defense first, defense second, defense third team. Just Kurt Miller and his staff, because, you know, I always like to give a shout out to the assistants too. This is never a one-person job. Kurt Miller and his staff really did a tremendous job at basically – flipping the Sun team's identity on its head and in a short period of time as, you know, WMA training camp, not that long of a time period and experiencing a ton of success. I just can't say enough about that, about the job they did with that. I think it's awesome. I think it's really cool to see all the schematic changes and all the changes in, in, in offensive philosophy. Just, he, he wasn't, he did it in not a lot of time um, in the face of an injury to his franchise player and Alyssa Thomas who, by the way, she still has two torn labrums in her shoulders. What? But, you know, with the Achilles, she was out for most of the season. Uh, but just just running a lot through, more, more through Brianna Jones, having John Cole Jones 
take that next step as an MVP caliber player. And then the defense. I mean, this Sun team was an incredibly well-disciplined defensive team. Granted, they were exposed a little bit again in that semifinal series against Chicago, but I believe you can't be an elite defense without a coach who at least somewhat knows what they're doing. And Kurt Miller, I, you just can't say enough about the job he did with that defense. So I think he 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 completely earned that award. I don't think anyone was even a distant second place. Very well put. Um, let's move on okay. to the the all league awards. We can start with all WNBA first team. I had Skylar Diggins Smith. Jewel Lloyd, John Quell Jones, Brianna Stewart, and Brittany Griner. Uh, any qualms there, Eric? That was my list, so no. <laughs> Anybody like on the second team who we'll get to that was like pretty close to to cracking first team? Because for me, yes. you know, the John Quell Jones was pretty much a shoe in. You know, it, it really came down to how much you kind of want to fudge the positions. Like, I I don't think you can really make any sort of a case that. Either Griner or Falls is a forward, uh, and this is a position-based award. Whether it should be or not is another conversation. So, the the Griner Stewart Falls is something that I I changed. You know that trio. You know probably a handful of times. Yeah, I agree, particularly with Falls. Um, Falls was on my second team, but I was I was flipping between her and Brianna Stewart on this team. I, for, I mean, obviously, if you have John Cole Jones winning MVP, she has to be on your first team. Diggins Smith and Lloyd were both shoe-ins for guards. I mean, I think that was that was pretty obvious. And then Griner, I mean, oh my God. <laughs> so so she she was on the first team too. Um, next level analysis there by Eric. Uh, but then Brandy Stewart versus Sylvia Fowles. I think it was a matter of, you know, Fowles' defense versus Stewart's offense, while both players were also pretty darn good on the other end of the floor as well. I just think with Stewart, she's just a better player. She just had a better season. Although you could argue that it was actually a down season for, for Brianna Stewart, which is kind of frightening for her opponents, at least. Yeah, I, I think Fowles was the only player I considered to have, you know, uh, the only player on my second team, rather, uh, that I considered to have on my first team. But this was, I think, a pretty straightforward selection. Fowles and Stewart, I thought they were, you know, pretty close to identical in terms of their defensive impact. You know, Fowles a, a little bit better as a one-on-one in the post, you know, I think, as I said many times on the show, the best player in the league playing the pick and roll, two on two. Stewart obviously better on the perimeter. I thought she was a little bit more impactful, you know, helping from the weak side, just a little bit more mobility, sure. not involved in that kind of action as much. So was put in position to, um, you know, be impactful more so there. And then you know, offensively, Stewart's just a better player, even as you know the true shooting and effective field goal percentage. You know, Sylvia Fowles is is all time historic number one in the history of the league in both of those categories. She struggles to create tough looks for herself into good looks for others uh, with with Fowles, and uh, I think you know Stewart is just a little bit more malleable and effective of an offensive player here. So I, I ended up going with with Stewart there. Falls obviously in both of our second teams. Uh, along falls on the second team for me, I had Ariel Atkins, Kayla McBride, Dewana Bonner, and Asia Wilson. Uh, where did you go for second team? Okay, I had, I agreed with you on Ariel Atkins and Asia Wilson. I had Tina Charles for my third uh, front court player, and Courtney Vandersuit for my other guard. Yeah, it looks uh, real stupid not having Courtney Vandersuit not on second team for me. Uh, uh, I well, pro- remember postseason not notwithstanding, and and I did kind of struggle between Sloot and uh, actually Benajah Laney uh, would, would would have been my fifth guard. But uh, what's I mean, the, what what was your reasoning for McBride? Well, I mean, like if you just had asked me, you know, don't do any research, like off the top of your head, who who are your four all league guards? Like McBride probably won't even had much of a consideration for me. I I was not really considering her all that seriously before really kind of diving into the research here. But I mean, 60% true shooting. She was the most uh, efficient individual player on a points per possession basis uh, because she never turns it over. I mean, she had her best season uh, this year, which, you know, no surprise given kind of what we've all been saying about Kayla McBride and how she was used in Las Vegas and, and, you know, what Cheryl Reeve was going to be able to kind of open up for her and her game. You know she's going to give you solid, if maybe not the most spectacular defense. She is a little bit more of a dependent player at the guard position offensively than, you know, a Benajah Laney or Courtney Vandersloot or someone like that. You know, I don't really love her off the bounce game, but the efficiency was just 
and and the increased usage and we saw her get her three-point attempt rate to where it could be uh, ideal sort of uh, volume and stuff like that so Atkins was the other one for us we we saw the definite kind of limitations in her offensive game this year another you know dependent player like a play finisher not an initiator not a self-creator uh, she's not going to give you a ton of value-added passing, which McBride isn't going to either. But Laney, the player that you mentioned, a player I left off and you did as well, um, you know, Laney is definitely the best passer of the three. Um, Laney, I think, you know, what Laney gives you in defensive reputation, Atkins actually gave you in defensive production this year. I didn't think it was a good defensive season for Benajah Laney. And Laney and Atkins' offensive numbers were kind of similar enough that I, I kind of gave Atkins the edge because she actually did have a very good defensive season. And Laney was, you know, just uh, a turnover machine, you know, led, led the league yeah. in total turnovers. She definitely, you know, created for others more, right? She's she's the best sort of playmaker of this group, uh, if you don't include Vandersloot, who you had on your team. But she was also the least effective not having the ball, you know, turned down a ton of open three-point looks, turned them into kind of off-the-bounce long twos. Um, so... Definitely had serious consideration for me, but um, ended up going with with McBride and Atkins. Okay, that's that's a very fair argument for McBride, and I think one thing one one point I kind of want to revisit here is something we talk about fairly often when discussing quote unquote role players. Just because you aren't, just because a player isn't that great off the bounce or isn't that great at creating her own shot, doesn't mean she isn't still a very very good basketball player. You know, and both Atkins and McBride are very very good basketball players. Laney is better at probably getting her own shot and getting to the cup. But if you factor in those turnovers, I mean, the turnovers for me were, were what ultimately kept Laney off the all WNBA team. Cause it was just, and if you look at, here's the thing. If, if, if you, to me, if you look at a player and you say, look at how much she's, she means to her team when the team is winning, when the team is losing, you also need to look at the same player and say, man, those turnovers are really a problem for the Liberty. You know, Liberty had a big problem with turnovers this season, and but Nigel Laney was very turnover prone. I don't. I, that's not unfair, is it? No, that's not unfair at all. And we also saw. I mean, she early in the season, you know, she she had that streak of 18, 20 point games. It, it seemed like she was just kind of no matter what was happening, she was going to be able to get there every, every night. Once New York really started to kind of face tougher competition that that had found their identity and stuff like that, you know. Laney's individual uh, effectiveness definitely wore off a little bit. You know, we saw a couple more like five point, eight point games, stuff like that. Um, she she evolved as a passer from last season. You know, the the reigning, I guess, most improved player. Her playmaking definitely took a huge leap forward, even from where it was last year. For sure. Um, but she, it, it's not unfair to say I think that she was kind of just overtaxed as sort of a number one option. You know what I mean? Yeah, kind of goofy when it, uh, the, the future star of the star of the franchise is your point guard. But I digress. Um, anyone else you considered but ultimately left off? Well, I think we should talk about uh, our differences in the forward, oh, forward. spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that that sort of last forward spot to me came down to Bonner, who I had. Charles had you ha- who you had, and Nafisa Collier. You know, if you're asking me kind of which player I would rather have, like, you know, for a 10 to 12 game, like title run, it probably is Nafisa Collier still. But I think this was just Collier's worst season, as I said earlier in the show, on both ends, which is still to say, you know, she was in consideration for for all league. Bonner, you know, as a superior defender, it it was another rough postseason for her. You know, I I think, I don't know, maybe I messed up and, and Charles does impact winning a little bit more but you know she charles for her position to be kind of a below average defensive player you know she she i think she ended up setting the the wmb record for usage for a player not named angel mccautry uh she'll i think she ended up fourth all time behind a, a few mccautry seasons and she's just far and away the worst defensive option of any of the the bigs or forwards or whatever however you want to categorize them mm-hmm being considered so you know it, it, it wasn't empty stats right her her points per game were, were extremely valuable she was able to get her efficiency higher you know maybe not what it was kind of early in the season but higher than than it had been in some of those uh bleaker new york seasons but i just ended up i guess going with bonner because of the defense and the team success okay that's that's fair that's fair you typically for this for these awards i, I don't view team success 
as strongly as I do for the individual MVP award. I, don't ask me why. Uh, <laughs> uh, I could see where the case is coming from, from from Bonner. The only thing is, I don't think her offense was efficient enough. But I mean, that's the that's the eternal Duana Bonner conundrum, right? Uh, it's not unexpected, um, and she is still a very decent two way player for for a good team. So it's not like those are those are empty stats either. So okay, fair. I guess we should move on to the last team that, that we have defense. here, the, the all-defense team, right? Um, so my first team, I had Ariel Atkins, Brittany Sykes, John Quell Jones, Brianna Stewart, Sylvia Fowles. Okay, I had Brittany Sykes, Jasmine Thomas, Sylvia Fowles, Brianna Turner, and John Quell Jones. You, you have not been a fan of Brianna Turner, have you? Well, Turner's on my second team. You know, I, I think kind of what, what she's good at and oftentimes sort of what she gets credit for being good at, you know, the it's uh, uh, the overlap in the Venn diagram is, is pretty slim. Like, I think she's a really, really great individual defender. I, I don't really think she brings kind of like Brianna Stewart level of, of help defense, um, but we saw her do, I thought, a really great job in the Vegas series, which of course did not factor into this consideration, but well, then the lousy job she did in the Chicago series doesn't factor into it either. Yeah. Well, that that's, that's true as well, but you know, she just didn't really have as much to sort of, you know, she didn't have that kind of one player. And and I think what she was asked to do in Chicago or or in that Chicago series, uh, exemplified a little bit more of the things that she, she's not as good at. Cause you didn't have the one player where you, okay, okay, just go, you know, make life as, difficult as possible for this one person. I think Turner's really good at that. I, I don't think she's sort of, you know, the mistake eraser that some of the best kind of uh, uh, help bigs in the league are. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. When I look at Brianna Turner, I, I think my 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 logic was there are so many players on Phoenix who just aren't good at all defensively, bordering on, like, inattentive or not giving – a lot of effort out there um not naming names but there are a few in the starting lineup so when i when i look at that defense i, I think of why is this at least a semi-successful defense and i think brianna turner has a lot to do that a lot to do with that particularly her defensive rebounding and, and, and her ability to kind of clean things up i agree that her her value as a help defender is a little overstated but I mean, when I was when I was watching those games against against this guy, I'm I'm just thinking like she has to cover so much ground to make up for the deficiency for the defensive deficiencies for the rest of this team. I think the Mercury would be a bottom three defense if she wasn't there. That's possible. Yeah, I mean, I have nothing. There's no statistics to base that off of, but I I think that's that would be true. I mean, I do think this was the best defensive grinder season we've seen in a long time you know i think she was just a little bit more locked in you know the chicago series aside where there was just i think a little bit too much spacing uh for for grinder to deal with yeah um but even just from like a focus standpoint and intensity standpoint we saw a lot less of just kind of the grinder you know checking out defensively uh than we had in previous seasons but so my second team was was jewel lloyd breon january Jasmine Thomas, not sure which one of those players is a forward. Maybe I didn't think this through enough. Uh, Dewana Bonner and Brianna <laughs> Turner. Okay, for my team, I had uh, January Atkins, Asia Wilson, Brianna Jones, and Brianna Stewart. So I, I went, for my teams, I went two perimeter players, three front court players. I, I don't know how this is actually voted on. Is there? You know, I think I had uh, Thomas and either Atkins or Sykes swapped at one point, and then I... I did swap them without kind of thinking about who would necessarily be. I mean, you could shoehorn Lloyd in as a three, I guess. Maybe, um, but, yeah. I mean, she played the three in, in, in several lineups. And any players that were kind of, you know, toughest left off for you? Yeah, I had a tough time leaving Jewel Lloyd off. Uh, this was honestly, this is this was nothing Jewel Lloyd didn't do. It was more of what Connecticut did do. I mean, you looked at the Connecticut defense. I had to put both Thomas and January on. And the way that that I was quote unquote voting, two guards, three forwards on each on, on each team, well then I had to have Sykes and Atkins on there as well because they're they're two of the best in the business as well. And then, poof, no more no more space for any more guards. I think Jewel Lloyd is is tremendously deserving of a of a spot on all defense. You know her her activity level was crazy good, and and her she's the best defensive uh, she's the best individual perimeter defender on that team right now as well. So. Uh, just her her individual defensive impact, what she meant to the Storm as a team, as as an individual defender and as a help defender, 
I apologize for my dog barking in the background. I can't stop it. Eric, could um, you say your uh, could you say your six forwards one more time? Okay, um, my six forwards were Fowles, Turner, Jones, Wilson, Stewart, other Jones. Okay, right. Thank you. I just, I couldn't uh, remember it altogether. Thank you. You're good. You're good. Uh, all right. Um, how about you? Any any I'm any? I'm leaving uh, all this in, by the way. Okay. Yes, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Um, uh, any um any tough leaves for you? Yeah, Jackie Young. I thought had a really good defensive season. She she definitely could have. Maybe if I was being more stringent on my positions and thinking it through a little bit more, she would have uh, taken the place of you know maybe a Jewel Lloyd or something like that. Rebecca Allen. Um, I think. You know, as good as she was in her role, you know, using her length to kind of guard the perimeter, she's giving up a huge quickness advantage and she's ostensibly the Liberty's four, which forces Laney to kind of defend out of position when they play together. Cause you know, she's, she's playing the four, but just defending fours, it's just not going to work. It's just not a viable option at all. You just have to have her defending like the point of attack, which is uh, a, a very valuable option in in a lot of matchups and she had a couple game saving um blocks i i feel very confident that she led the team in in total stocks i know she did in in blocks as you know a perimeter defender essentially so she she had a good defensive season i think she was worthy of consideration but just not quite the level of defensive player as you know the rest of these very good defensive players yeah and i mean if, if you consider what position do you consider alan like she's a guard playing the four so for voting purposes, that's kind of weird. Um, she's not a better defender. She's not a better guard defender than any of the guards I chose. I, 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 I can tell you that. Yep, and I agree. As for as for, for as for front court players, she doesn't make the overall impact that any of these front court players did. I mean, you, you could maybe argue Brianna Turner, but I'm not going to. Um, she that 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 her her positional versatility almost did her a disservice there. Uh, we can talk about executive of the year quick. I well, don't think there are a ton of good options for this award. You know, there there just wasn't that one like uh, really standout award winner. I went with Cheryl Reeve, who brought in two max players, brought in Leisha Clarendon, obviously midseason, traded Michaela Herbert Harrigan for a first round pick, uh, got rid of the Odyssey Sims contract uh protected veteran contract for what will essentially be moving down three draft slots because they got indiana's second rounder back in that deal you know for having to shed that kind of salary that that's a pretty decent good business yeah a good piece of business there was maybe what anyone considered for this award the natalie Chanwa signing was probably the worst individual transaction of any kind of gm you would kind of put into consideration but everything else uh that Cheryl Reeve did, I thought kind of what uh, was good enough. I considered Greg Bibb, who I know is not a very popular <laughs> uh, figure around uh, WNBA circles, but you know a, a lot of good that Greg Bibb did, trading Katie Lou Samuelson for the number one pick, trading number seven in 2020 for what turned out to be a 2021 lottery pick, um, signing Alicia Gray to a very reasonable restricted free agent deal, signing Kayla Thornton to a very uh, bargain extension was able to you know didn't didn't really kind of get rid of any of the kind of uh money you know that that's sort of tying up their books um for the next year but was able to at least kind of that, it. yeah kick that can down the road one more year while you know swapping the worst of their excessive number of first round picks to a, a lottery pick this year so i mean that that's a, a lot of good you know uh individual transactions even if kind of the the sum of the parts, you know, don't add up to the whole or, or whatever that saying is. I don't know. Uh, so Dan Padover of the Aces won this award officially. Uh, what, what what case do you have for and against him? Well, he signed Chelsea Gray. He signed Raquana Williams, which that Raquana Williams contract was turned out to be a heck of a deal. Um, I think it was it was under 100K. There, there, I think Raquana Williams is maybe like one of the only players in the league that signed for above the minimum but less than 100k i I can't recall any other player kind of squeezing into that uh contract but i mean yeah that that's a good case i I don't really have any negatives it just seems like you know chelsea gray was kind of always going to sign there right so by by that logic you would also say candace parker was always going to sign with this guy so james way shouldn't be in consideration well i think james wade had his own uh against considerations um but yeah i mean 
did how much did James Wade really play into bringing in Candace Parker? You know, maybe I'm just not in in the best position to kind of navigate through that. But um, you know, James Wade isn't the reason that Candace Parker's from Naperville, right? No, no, Naperville, not Chicago. Just just to set that straight, but that's uh, all good fun. Um, now, I just wanted to see your opinion on that because I, the Candace Parker transaction was obviously enormous. But then this guy spent like a month messing around with, with, uh, with, with salary cap, doing a little salary cap uh, carousel there, just to get their a reserve guard as soon as they could because their first round draft pick was virtually unplayable. So, Poss- yeah, possibly I mean, the worst player in the league this year. Yeah, that was that was not good. That that whole thing was not good. So, um, it all ended well. But yeah, that was that was a kind of an up and down season from a general manager per- perspective. Um. Any other candidates? Like, see, this is the thing about this award. It's it's not all general managers are in the same position, you know. So you could say like, oh yeah, Dan Panover signed Chelsea Gray. Well, I'm sure a lot of other teams wanted to sign Chelsea Gray too, but they just didn't have the cap space, or they didn't have the appeal. Yeah, or, or they they didn't have Asia Wilson already on roster. <laughs> yeah, or they didn't have a stacked roster to to court that player with. So that's why I ultimately didn't choose anybody for this award because i think it's not really only so many teams can sign the players that don't want to play for Derek fisher anymore exactly yeah right (laughs) exactly Derek fisher executive of the year no um but yeah and also i think one thing that needs to be considered also is very rarely do you have uh this is like circumstantial evidence but i think very rarely do you have a gm solely working on their own if there is a head coach and a gm they're two different people serving the two different roles in a front office with the team, there's no way, well, maybe people in Dallas might disagree, but there's no way in other cases that the head coach doesn't at least have some input, you know? Um, and as for as for teams, and, and then if you have uh, one person filling both the head coach and GM role, well, then it's kind of overlapping credit that they would get as a GM and a coach. You got to figure out, well, how much of this is a coaching job and how much of it is a GM job. So I just think it's a goofy award. I understand why they have to put it out there, but... It's just not. It's just not an award that I'm interested in, in in discussing, really. All right. Well, Eric, this was fun. Thank you, yeah, listeners, always. for for listening. As always, if you want to support the show, it would be greatly appreciated, and you could do so by subscribing, rating, and reviewing uh, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, or just on Apple, Spotify, and Google. You can follow us on Twitter at Double Down WNBA at Nemchak E for Eric at Trinkwald for myself. We will be off next weekend, but back um, the first weekend in November. So we'll be off Halloween weekend, I guess, uh, but still coming to you with podcasts um, just about every week this off season. So until next time. All right. Take care, everybody.